You've been listening to the weekly sermon from the Vine Church in Madison, Wisconsin, a spirit-filled family that makes disciples and plants churches among neighbors and nations through declaration and demonstration. For more information and service times, check out our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Go ahead and find our seats, and we'll get started here today. We're going to be looking at uh, Genesis chapter 3 and Ephesians 5 this morning. Genesis 3 and Ephesians 5. Uh, if you're new here, I want to say welcome. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. It's so good that you are with us. We've been in this series on, uh, on gender to the glory of God and looking at what does it mean that God created human beings, male and female, in his image. And that has a lot of implications for the church and for the family and for how we conduct ourselves individually and how we interact with the culture. And so we've been spending some weeks looking at that. And this last week and this week and next week are specifically um, gender and marriage. And so here's what we talked about last week. If you were not here last week, I'd encourage you to go to vinemadison.org and check that out because it kind of builds on itself. But here's what we talked about last week. God created marriage, and in marriage, he calls men to bear the ultimate leadership responsibility for the family, and wives to co-labor with their husbands as their appointed helpmate within the family. Let me say that again. God created marriage, and in marriage, he calls husbands to bear ultimate leadership responsibility for the family, and wives to co-labor with their husbands as their appointed helpmate within the family. So today, just kind of a quick overview, we're going to look at the failure of this. We're going to look at the failure of this from Genesis chapter 3, and then we're going to look at the success of this in the life of Jesus in Ephesians chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, uh, open up to Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. And I'm just going to walk through this and not spend a ton of time on it, and I'll just stop and make a couple comments, and then we'll get to the good news, okay? Genesis chapter 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Let's stop right there. Go back and look at verse 1. God's enemy says to the woman, did God actually say? Now, for all time, this has been Satan's strategy. Our Hollywood movies show lots of craziness when it comes to the devil being some monstrous character and demonization and horns and fire and, you know, whatever. That's all Hollywood dumbness, okay? The reality is Satan's not that overt. That's too easy to spot, right? All the Hollywood stuff, you can see that coming a mile away. That's too easy to avoid. 
Satan's strategy is way more subtle, the real strategy. It's way more subtle, way more below the radar. It's just asking a simple question. I mean, what's so bad about asking a simple question, right? Just seeding a little bit of doubt. Did, I mean, it's just a question. Did God actually say? Did he actually say? I mean, maybe, Eve, your interpretation is off, right? We see this in Matthew chapter 4 with the second Adam, the truer and the better Adam, Jesus. And Satan comes to him and he just just questions scripture. You can read it, Matthew chapter 4, 1 through 11. Just questions scripture, just seeds a little doubt. Did God actually say, it's not that scary. It's just, just a question. It happens all the time today. False teaching always starts here. Did God really say that Jesus rose physically from the dead? Did God really say that Jesus is the substitute, that you actually need a substitute, someone to stand in your place between your sin and, and a holy God? Did God actually do that? Does God really have something to say about how humans use their bodies? Just asking questions. Look at verse 3. But God said, this is Eve talking, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. And then Satan speaks. He responds. He's not going to take no for an answer. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So this is, a, this is more out, outright. You will not surely die, Satan says. And here's, here's the deal. Here's what's really going on according to Satan. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So what's the implication here? What, what's, the, what's the seed of doubt that Satan is planting He's saying, God's holding out on you. God is holding out on you. The man is keeping you down. Like, like, don't you feel too restricted? Like, God's word is too restrictive. Like, why would he not get, I mean, you have all these trees, but just not this one. Well, why not all of them? Right? Satan's claim is that God is the one who's a liar. And you're going to be, Adam and Eve, you're going to be more fulfilled if you listen to me and trust my word and not his. In some ways, Christianity just boils down to whose word are you going to listen to? Whose word? Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. She gave some to her husband who was with her. Husbands, do you see that? Adam, you were with her. Adam, why didn't you defend her? Adam, why did you let the snake talk to your wife? Adam, why didn't you speak up? Why are you so passive? 
Like this is the ultimate failure in godly leadership in marriage right here. This is it. Verse 6. He just took from her and he ate it. He was with her the whole time. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Man, hiding is always the first approach. You can notice it in your own heart. I notice it in mine. Sin, knee-jerk response, I'm going to hide. Don't let anybody see. Don't look at me. Don't know me. Don't see me. Hiding is always, I mean, just look for it. You can look for it in your own heart. Hiding is always the first sign of a rupturing of true fellowship with God and with others. Hiding always destroys Christian community. It's why God asks us to walk in the light as he is in the light. Verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? As if he didn't know. Right? But it's more like he's, like, he's saying, like, Adam, do you know where you are right now? Notice he calls out to the husband. Satan goes to Eve. Adam goes to the husband. I'm sorry, God goes to Adam, the husband. God goes to his appointed leader and says, I heard this, um, and Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. There it is again, hiding. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I've commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. She gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Man, things are going downhill fast, right? Now think about what we saw in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Just like the pinnacle of beauty. God speaks and the earth just comes alive. And then... Adam recognizes that he's alone. God recognizes that he's alone. And God brings this amazing provision for his aloneness. This perfect complement that fits who he is. Man and wife together, one flesh. He just like rejoices with Hebrew poetry we saw last week. This finally at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Like I've been, I've been looking at all these animals. They don't fit. But he says, finally, there's this woman who's just like me, but very different from me. And we go together and he's just heaping praise on her and delighted in his wife. And now, just a few sentences later, what? She's the problem. You see it? She's the problem. The woman you gave to me, she's the problem. She's to blame. And ultimately, this is real brash. Man, Adam, he's losing his mind here. What does he do? He doesn't just blame her. He blames God. He said, listen to what he says. The woman that you gave me. 
ultimately, God, this is your fault. It's her fault, but really it's your fault. And this is dark stuff. This is dark. And this is the, the great failure of male leadership in our churches and in our culture. And, and it, I, I could see it in my own heart. Husbands, if you're honest, you might see it there too. Adam started it. We all inherit it. Uh, 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 unless we kill it with repentance, it's this. It's blame shifting and failing to take responsibility. Husbands, if you want to know what godly leadership looks like, there's more, but it's never less than this. It's taking responsibility. It's taking responsibility. It's not blame shifting, complaining. It's taking responsibility. Well, Eve is is not that much better. Look at verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. She blames the snake. She doesn't own anything either. Everyone's blame shifting. Everyone's hiding. Everyone's believing lies. Like this is the disintegration of, of, of marriage. No one's taking responsibility. It's everybody else's fault. My problem is not me. My problem is out there. My problem isn't in here. My problem's out there. Like that's, that's like ground zero for almost every marital conflict. No ownership, just blame shifting. And the horror of this text is real. I mean, we, if we're honest, we can see it in our hearts. I see it in my heart. Now, my only point this morning is so we feel this real distinct contrast, okay? This is the meltdown. We see an absolute meltdown, right? But in the meantime, what I want us to see and spend the the majority of our time this morning is looking at the redemption, looking at the redemption. There's a pathway, especially for husbands this morning, for redemption. We're going to turn away from this carnage that we see in Genesis 3 and look to the hope of redemption ushered in by Jesus for two image bearers to come together and have a marriage that glorifies God. So today we're going to look at the pathway for husbands to lead in godliness. And then next week we're going to look at wives. So if you have a Bible, um, flip way over to Ephesians chapter 5. And it's uh, toward the front of the New Testament. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, right in there, chapter 5. And we're going to focus on husbands this morning. Ephesians 5.25, it says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her. Let me read it again. Think about the words here, husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So there's an obvious question that jumps off the page for us if you're a husband. If I'm going to take this verse seriously, if I want to enact this verse in my marriage... Real simple, we have to answer this question. How did Christ give himself up for the church? 
how did Christ give himself up for the church? I have to know the answer to this question if I'm going to know what God wants from me as a husband. And so look at the words in 25. Husbands, love your wives as. That, that word as is very important. So I'm going to love my wife, but it's going to look like something. It's going to look like as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So I'm called to look like Jesus in some ways. I'm never going to be Jesus, but the Bible calls me as a husband to look like Jesus where it's possible. And Paul assumes that it's possible in this. Laying down your life. Love is going to look like, husbands, laying down your life. It's going to look like giving up of myself. Right? See that connection between love and giving up in verse 25? You're going to love, in some ways, it says, by giving up of yourself for her. This is what Christian love uniquely looks like. It looks like sacrifice. Love looks like you laying down yourself for the flourishing of your wife. See, Jesus has a wife too, right? This is one of the most powerful metaphors in all the scriptures. There's a marriage. The, 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 the scriptures start with a marriage, Genesis chapter 2, and it ends with a marriage, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it's this powerful metaphor that runs through scripture that God has a bride. Jesus has a people. And, and the metaphor is that Jesus is the husband and God's people, the church, are his bride. Look at Ephesians 5.32. Just jump down to verse 32. And Paul says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The mystery he's talking about is the mystery of marriage. It's profound. And it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage exists to shine a light on Christ and the church, to shine a light on the relationship of Christ and the church, to shine a light on Jesus laying down his life to win a people for himself. That's why marriage exists. So in that sense, husbands and wives hear this this morning and single people hear this this morning. Marriage ultimately isn't even about us. Like if we can own that and feel that, man, that will free up so many of our marriages. It's not just about you. It's not about like some Hollywood movie and having a soulmate and falling in love as, as good as those things are. But ultimately, those things aren't ultimate. Ultimately, Jesus and the cross and the resurrection and, and winning a people for himself that they're in profound union with one another, Christ and his people, that's what marriage is about. That's why you have a marriage. That's why your marriage exists. That's what you exist to display and show an on-looking world. So here's the, the real simple application. Husbands, as you start heading in this direction, my hunch is that if you hang out with people that don't know Jesus, there will be a distinction between like the marriages 
that they see around them and maybe your marriage. And some people might say, like, man, you take your wife on a date. Man, you hold her hand when you go on a walk. Man, it seems like you um, really lay down your life for her and, and really care about her. And they might look at you and say, man, that's really cool. I really appreciate how I can see you loving your wife. And then something you could say would just be like, hey, I'm really glad you can read the sign. And they were like, what, what, what are you talking about? Like, what sign? What does that mean? And you could just say something like, yeah, thanks for asking. If, if you would allow me, let me explain, just because I'm a Christian, and God says that this marriage that we're in, it's really not even about us. And there's this greater marriage that it points to. Could I share that with you? You could say something like that. And then insert gospel presentation. Right? So what does this look like? Adam, we saw it, the failure. He did not lay down his life for his wife. He listened to the snake talk to his wife, and then he just went along with it. But the Bible says that Jesus is going to crush the head of the serpent. If any of you saw the movie a few years ago, The Passion of the Christ, there's that powerful opening scene that's hard to forget where he's praying in the Garden of the Gethsemane and Satan unleashes that snake to do whatever and come towards him and he stands up and he crushes the head of that snake. That's what that movie's trying to symbolize and point to, that Jesus says that he's going to crush the head of the serpent. And the way that he went about that is through his death. Ephesians 5, giving up of himself. So here's the question for us, husbands. What do we know about Jesus laying down his life? What does it look like? I'm just going to give you three things this morning, okay? First of all, number one, Jesus sacrificed his well-being. Number two, he prayed for his people, for his bride, the church. And number four, he leads his bride, the church, with the word of God. He laid down his well-being, he prays for the church, and he led with the word of God. So number one, he sacrificed his well-being. So God forbid this ever happens to any of you in your marriage, but if it ever does... Husbands, we have this commitment right now that if it's her life versus mine, she's the one that lives. Like that's how, as true as this gets. That has to be our orientation, husbands. There's a, a very, very poignant illustration of this a few years ago. There was that horrific and tragic um, mass shooting in Colorado in a movie theater during the showing of um, Batman the Dark Knight. And all these people were killed. And there's a story of uh, a double date and two boyfriends with their girlfriends. Shooting starts. They literally jump on top of their girlfriends. And they took the bullets and those girls lived. That's as, that's as like close of a parallel to this text and a model for our marriage as it gets. Gave himself up for her. 
That's as Christ-like as it gets. So when you love your wife like this, what happens? You just point to Jesus. So if we're short on food, the husband should be eating last. If the car gets caught in a snowstorm, you don't send your wife and kids out to figure it out, right? And, And here's the deal. Like, there's this, you know, catchphrase in our culture for many, many years, women and children first. And, but I just want to say, like, we're not underscoring these things because we have some huge desire to, to keep lockstep with a mantra of the culture. As good as that may be, we want to do this because this is what God says. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Number one, he sacrificed his well-being. Number two, we see that Jesus prays for the bride. Jesus prays for his people. And look at how he prays. This is John 17. He's about to be crucified. He's in his last hours. He goes and he prays for his disciples and those that would believe in him through their message. Look at what this says. This is John 17. Jesus praying. I do not ask for these only, meaning his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So there's a unity here that Jesus is praying for. So it started back in the garden, Genesis 2, we saw it last week. Man and woman, and they shall become, husband and wife, and they shall become, what does it say? One flesh. And here Jesus is praying for the church. That we would be the church with Jesus, one flesh, this amazing unity. So one way that you can lead your wife to display the glory of the gospel through your marriage is to pray with your wife for your unity. Like, God, would you help us be so united and so one that it displays the amazing oneness that Jesus, you have through the power of the Holy Spirit with your people, the church. This is a form of giving yourself up, husbands, taking your time and energy to not just pursue selfishness, but to pursue selflessness by thinking about prayer with my spouse. And what should the content be of our praying? Well, maybe in light of this, just unity. God's desire in our marriages is that we will be so united. There would be no division, that there would be no hiding, that there would be no wedge of bitterness in our marriage because there's no wedge of bitterness or hiding between Jesus and the church, right? And so husbands, maybe you need to pull your wife into your side and say, babe, let's pray that we would experience a deeper oneness and unity in all aspects of our marriage. Let's go to God together. Let's ask him to bless our unity and our 
oneness. Husbands, that could be maybe one of the most powerful things you do today. So he sacrificed his well-being. He prayed for the church. And then finally, he gave himself up for the church by leading with the word. By leading with the word. This is what we're going to see next in, in our text. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay, so what was the goal? Verse 26 tells us. The goal was that he might sanctify her, the church, his people, meaning see them to be holy. Sanctify means to be holy and set apart as special, as unique. That's what sanctification is. So that he might make her holy, sanctify her, How? Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So the Bible, Jesus leads with his word. He speaks Bible. We have Bible. And so that's why we lead with the Bible. Well, what's the point of all that? Verse 27. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without Blemish. So Jesus wants a church that's flourishing spiritually. He laid down his life so that the church with the word at the center could flourish spiritually. That's what this says. And so he says, in the same way, husbands, this is what we're supposed to do. You want to see your wife flourishing. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. That's verse 28. In the same way as Christ loves the church with the word central, having her spiritual flourishing in mind, husbands, you do the same. So the words should be central in your marriage, husbands. Jesus calls out to the church and says, do you have ears to hear? Do you have ears to hear? And so we're not Jesus, we'll never be Jesus, but, ladies, can we get an amen, right? But we can lead with this as our example. Like, honey, I just want the word to be central. I want the word to be central. I just want to be a tool. I'll never be Jesus. And, and, and husbands, we can't change our wives through, like, pre, it's not like you sit down with your wife and like, all right, I have a three-point sermon now, and I'll present it to you. And like, no, that's not going to go well. Okay, but maybe you could just be a tool that the Holy Spirit will use to bless your wife in her growth and flourishing spiritually. So something you might want to ask your wife, never heavy handed, but gently ask her what she's been reading in the Bible lately. And what has that meant to her? Simple question. Never heavy-handed, but gently maybe ask her what she thought of the preached word on Sunday morning. What did you think? Can we, let's just talk about that a little bit. Never heavy-handed, but gently, do you, do you ask her if it would be okay maybe just to, hey, can we just read a portion of scripture together and then pray that scripture together? Maybe you're having a hard day and you're just going to open up to Psalm 46. My help comes from the Lord. Let's pray. God, would you help us? There's just some simple ideas for how Jesus 
leads the church with the word and maybe how you could lead your wife with the word, like we see in verse 26. So three things from this text we see for how husbands can lead sacrificially like Jesus leads the church to give themselves up, sacrificing our well-being for our wives, um, praying for unity with our wives like Jesus prays for the church, and then Jesus gives up himself for the church by leading with the word, giving his time and his energy to, 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 to speak the word of God. And so we want to lead with the word as well, husbands. So let me close with a vision, husbands, for how to think about this in a, maybe even a more simple and succinct way. I love the language that we find here in our text. Look at verse 29. Let's back up to verse 28. In the same way, husbands... You should love your wives as your own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but here it is, nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. So husbands, we're called to love our wives like we love our own bodies. Paul is making the simple case here that's not hard to figure out, that everybody pays attention to their body. Like if you get a nasty cut on your finger, you're going to address that or else you're going to bleed to death. So most people don't want to bleed to death, so we deal with the cut, right? We take care of our bodies. No one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it. This is real simple. The assumption is we're going to take care of our bodies. I mean, just think about our culture. Billion-dollar industry on fitness and weight loss, right? Billion-dollar industry in our culture. Millions and millions of people demonstrate that Paul is right here. That it's normal for us to want to take care of our bodies. And even if you're not into fitness and, and, and eating right, we all get it. If you're sick, you know, unless you're that guy that like refuses to go to the doctor because he's the tough guy, you know, don't be that guy. Like those guys end up dead too soon, right? But unless you're that guy, everybody knows what it's like to want to go to the doctor when, when your body's not working right, right? But man, we see in our culture people rapidly focused on their bodies in terms of fitness and eating and exercising and mindfulness. And, and I think Paul's saying, take all that energy that you see of this rabid focus, and I want you to channel that kind of energy toward being rapidly focused on nourishing and cherishing your wife. Because it just makes sense. You do that with yourself. Okay. You get that, now do that with your wife. So husbands, real simple. Like just, just um, you, you can, again, I'll say it again this week. You can love your wife and lead her so well by just listening to her. And let me just give you a couple questions that I think will deepen oneness that, that Jesus is praying for, for his people as you model Christ in the church in your marriage. Just ask her, honey, do you feel nourished and cherished by me. Just see what she says. Take some notes. 
Do I make you feel full or do you feel starved sometimes? I mean, that's what to be nourished actually means. It means to be fed. It means, you know that feeling of like being satisfied after you have a good meal? You're nourished. And, and, and God is calling husbands to be aware and thinking about the nourishment of your wife. Well, the best way to know what's going on with your wife is just to ask her. Do you feel starved sometimes, honey? I don't want you to feel starved. Do you, do you see me or feel cherished by me in the way that you see me cherishing other things? So like my wife knows that I cherish a lot of the tools in my shop. I take care of them. When they break, I want them fixed. And so does Kim know and actually tangibly feel that I cherish her more than my shop tools, right? It's very possible she might not feel that way. So I need to ask her. Just ask her, real simple, how can I grow in nourishing and cherishing you? Because I really want to put the gospel on display in our marriage. And so I see this as a husband is important for me. So help me. I want to do this for you. Let me close with a couple quotes from a guy I really respect in ministry, a pastor named Ray Ortland. And he kind of um, puts some more definition on what, and really helpful for what it means to nourish and cherish your wife. Guys, check this out. Here's how he describes nourishing. Marriage to a Christ-like husband is, for a woman, the opposite of a dead-end life. A woman married to a nourishing man comes to the end of her days as an older lady and as she's sitting on a porch somewhere in her rocking chair, looking back on her life, she's praising God and thinking, being married to my husband opened, up, opened my whole life up. Yes, we suffered. Yes, we made mistakes. But in it all, my husband thought of me. He cared about my li- how my life was going. What a great run we had. Living together for Christ, that is nourishing one's wife. And listen to how he, he, he describes cherishing. The word cherish goes even deeper emotionally because this word means, quote, to comfort, to warm, to soften as by heat. Our word heartwarming conveys the sense. Paul uses this word in 1 Thessalonians 2.7 where he says, We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So when a woman is married to a lovingly Christ-like man who cherishes her, she feels warmth in her heart at being valued by her husband and held dear above all others, second only to Christ himself. Her husband doesn't compare her with others or find fault with her or treat her as a loser he's stuck with. That would break her heart. Instead, her husband delights in her and prizes her And she feels it deep inside with a heartwarming glow. That is cherishing one's wife. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. I see many of you husbands doing that. Keep doing it. 
And I just want to close with just a gospel reminder, specifically for husbands, lest anybody leave here just feeling a weight of condemnation, because here's the deal. All of us somewhere on the spectrum here of complete failure to just knock it out of the park, all of us are somewhere on that spectrum, probably not knocking it out of the park. And that's okay to be honest about that. It's okay. And here's the deal. Husbands, be reminded that the ultimate husband died for your failures. He died so that you could be free to practice repentance with your wife because you know and you're secure in the fact that no one can take that, that forgiveness away from you. No one can take your sonship away from you. So you're free to repent in light of your identity being secure because you know that Christ died and was raised for you so that you could know life, so that you could know forgiveness, so that you could walk in the freedom of repentance and turning from the old way of doing things and wanting to do a new way of things. So in that freedom, husbands, repent if you need to, listen to her, ask good questions, move forward in leadership of your wife as you lay down your life for her flourishing. Why? Because you know that the true and ultimate husband has laid down his life for you so that you can be free. And it's in that spirit and in that empowering by the Holy Spirit, you move forward towards your wife to see the gospel on display through your marriage. Let's pray. Father, would you help us do this Lord, I pray that there would be just a real sense of encouragement for husbands this morning, that there would be no condemnation for those who are in Christ, that they would walk in a spirit of freedom, but also a, a spirit of, of desiring to grow. May there be no, um, yeah, may there just be no fear, God. I just pray for a deep oneness in our marriages this morning that, look, that, that it would look like the glory of, of Christ in the church. And may there be lots of people that notice how well husbands love their wives in this church. And they would ask, and we would share our, share our faith and, and, and just say, it's not about us, but God, that we would draw attention to you. And so help us be those kind of husbands, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.